Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You say that your readers will learn to read the historical books of the Bible as both inspirational and cautionary tales. What do you mean by this? So uh, there was one quote that I remember reading not long ago where a rabbi said the difference between the way Christians and Jews read the Bible. He said, Christians read the Bible looking for truth. Jews read the Bible looking for meaning. And I really liked that distinction. Because we read the Bible just as a like a document full of facts as Westerners. So to understand that the Bible is meant to, like even when it's telling us a story, it's not telling us a story just so we know that it happened. It, when it tells us a historical tale, it's not just telling us a, a historical tale so that we can know the details of what took place or what transpired, the facts historically. It's putting those facts together in the story in such a way that it does something to us as a reader. We are provoked and changed and transformed. So to understand the Bible is is never there just to report on the details, but it's there to inspire or to be a cautionary tale, to warn me about the dangers of imperial lust and what it does to the human heart or what it, you know, there's just so many things that the Bible's always doing something underneath the surface. It's inviting me to become a better leader or a better follower or whatever those things might be, it's it's asking me to reflect on, it's it's going to inspire me, it's going to provoke me, it's going to alarm me, it's going to disturb me, it's going to keep me up at night. This is what the Bible does to us. And, and when we go in expecting that, looking for that, knowing that that's the intent, I don't settle for easy like, oh yeah, I read the story of David and Goliath and it happened a long time ago in the Valley of Elah. I go, okay, but there's a reason why this story was told. So why am I going to be different after reading this story? Yeah, share some, do you have some, some of your favorite examples or uh, can you share, you know, when this started really kind of clicking for you, uh, when you started looking at the Bible differently, do you have any like favorite stories like from the Torah or from the Old Testament? Where, you, one where of them, you started seeing the layers and sure yeah one of them really was the, the reason that came to mind just a moment ago as i was saying that was david and goliath was one of those stories where i went okay here's a story i've heard forever like i've been i've grown up in church my whole life i've heard david and goliath almost i'm sure every year when i was a child in sunday school like i was just so familiar with that story and then when somebody started peeling back some of the layers there i went okay so we got a story that happened in history that's great but why are there five stones why is goliath six cubits tall with a six shekel uh heavy spearhead and a brother with six fingers and why is his armor like scales and all of a sudden like all these bells and whistles are going off why why does david go down there armed with five stones with the torah and why does he put the torah on goliath's forehead and there's a story underneath this story here and and when you juxtapose that to Saul, who should be more than capable of taking care of this, but we have a shepherd boy 
going down armed with Torah to defeat Jet. There's a there's subtext to that for sure. Or to take this understanding about numbers and to take them with me into the Gospels and read a story like the feeding of the 5,000. And I think I had grown up in a Christian world that just went, wow, a miracle happened. Do you believe that a miracle happened? Because a miracle happened. And sure, but there's subtext to that. There's 5,000 people that get fed with five loaves and two fish, and there's 12 baskets. Those are all very Jewish numbers, and there's subtext. And then Jesus goes to the other side of the lake and feeds 4,000 people, but there's no Jews living on the other side of the lake. That's all Gentiles. And so the numbers change. It's 4,000 and seven baskets and seven loaves. And so why are the numbers all different? And then when you're like, oh, maybe I'm just making all this stuff up, Jesus gets back in the boat and then tells his disciples, gets kind of gets after them. And the thing he grills them on is the numbers. Like just when you're like, maybe I'm making this stuff up. Maybe I'm projecting this onto the text. Maybe Marty's making up all this Eastern, but Jesus literally gets in the boat and grills them about how many baskets, how many people, how many people and how many baskets. He literally calls their attention to the numbers and says, do you not understand the lesson that I just taught you? And he's not just saying, boy, didn't we have a lot of leftovers? Look at the miracle. He's saying, how many numbers? What were the numbers? There's a lesson there. And, and I just love those are two examples, Old and New Testament, that were just like, man, the color just, there's so much depth. There's so much, there are so many layers to the things that I have always taken for granted. There's so much more to learn. And I find that invigorating. That's, that's awesome. So I have a, I have a bit, I'm uh, studying the life of Jacob right now. And uh, I have a question for you. Just, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. You know how he steals uh, Esau's birthright, mm-hmm. and then at, and then at the end of Isaac's life, he steals the blessing. Is there a difference between the birthright and the blessing, or are they the same? Do they overlap? Um, what what are your what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there would be a difference. So the birthright would be his claim to. It's very material. It's his claim to inheritance. It's also more than material. It's He's going to carry on the mission, the legacy. He's going to carry on his dad's name. So that birthright is everything from material inheritance to the legacy that he's going to be called to live out. So when he steals the birthright, what he's really saying is, <laughs> and who knows, Jacob, at that at that young, if he's just motivated by the material, does he actually want, is there something in him that wants more? Like, I don't just want to be the second born son I want to be the one that's at the front of the line. I want to have dad's approval. Rabbi Foreman's wrote uh, a book, uh, Genesis, a parasha companion, where he just did this amazing job pulling apart the family of um, Rebecca and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And I just thought it was so well done in asking some of these questions. But um, then the blessing, well, that's the, and they See, in a way, this is a good another good example of East and West because I think in the Western world, like, oh, well, that's just like those are just kind of like words thrown out right. there, kind of like a prayer, like who really cares? In the Eastern world, those words, like it was Abraham Joshua Heschel that said, words create worlds, um, kind of referring to God speaking creation into existence. But the Jewish world believes there's power in word. So when your dad pronounces a blessing that he's prayed over and he believes he's received from God those words have power and meaning. And so he not only gets this material, this is what you're going to inherit. He also gets the 
blessing of this is what God's going to do through your life spoken over me by my father. And they are different things connected in a lot of ways, really kind of the same battle underneath it all, but, but two very distinct things that he steals in a lot of ways or, or tricks his dad out of um, in both cases. Right. And as, as a Western in the Western mindset and both of those cases, you think, Oh, well, he could just take that back. Yeah, like, yeah, just undo like, it. <laughs> just undo it. Hey, I, I messed up. You you deceived me, so yep. you don't get it anymore. But um, but it, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's powerful stuff. Real quickly, do you see any lessons in the life of Jacob? Oh gosh, just so so many. The big one that just always seems to be on the surface is how God continues to use this guy, who is such a hot mess. Like, of all the. The, the the family of God, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. You think of all the patriarchs. If there's one that is the most dysfunctional, at times the most slimy or the most deceptive, at times the most whatever, it's Jacob. And yet Jacob will be the one that gets renamed Israel. Jacob will be the one that we always think of as the father of, of, of the nation of God's people. It, he's the one that, and you're just like, golly, choose something else. Like, choose Abraham, choose Isaac for that matter, choose, but why are we choosing Jacob? And I think there's something in that where God says, I want to use the person who has a fire in their belly and chutzpah and wants to, and they might be a mess, but they are, they're, they're moving, they're going, and I can take and steer somebody that's moving easier than I can light a fire under an Esau to get them going. I would far rather use somebody that just wants to suck all the marrow out of life, to find the treasure buried in a field, to whatever. Like I want, I want that fire, and I can, I can mold and shape that fire. And I think there's a lot of us out there that can resonate to w- with that and say, oh, I, I don't have to have my life altogether. Like God wants to use the piece of me that's on fire a little bit for his good and his kingdom, his glory, his purposes, his name. And I think we look at Jacob and go, yeah. And God says, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm all the way in on this. Let's go. Yeah. It's like God is saying I can use anybody. And Absolutely. Uh, there's a lesson about God's grace there too, that, um, you know, that he, he didn't choose. And, and we see this in the, in the old Testament, um, they, they did nothing to deserve, um, the, the, you know, God's blessing. And, uh, so it's, it's a powerful lesson of grace. That's, that's great. Well, let's talk, let's go back. You mentioned the word deconstruction. So as you know, it's a lot of people are talking about that, uh, today, but can you explain what deconstruction is and why reconstruction is just as important? Yeah, we we did a episode on the podcast in session six. Uh, I did it with Reed Dent on deconstruction. And one of the things we talked about in that episode was we used the metaphor of like scaffolding around a house. Like if you can imagine our faith or the thing that God calls us to being this this home, and and we're trying to figure this thing out. So we're trying to look at it. So we build all the scaffolding to allow us to look at the roof and appear in the windows at the top floors and whatever that stuff might be. But over the years, that scaffolding becomes less helpful to get the job done. And so you have to take some of that scaffolding down and rebuild new scaffolding. And But some of us end up putting a whole lot of faith in the scaffolding itself, and we forget what's 
why that scaffolding was there in the first place. And I, I like that metaphor because I have no problems with deconstruction. I know a lot of folks are, and, and I get it. There's, there are some people that are, some people uh, freak out over it. They're like, Oh no. Yeah. And, and there are people that, that, you know, they're, they're not just deconstructing. There's all kinds of intentions behind all. I, I mean, I, I get all that, the nuances and the, but uh, with the person that's, with character and integrity and honesty and authenticity, truly asking questions about their faith, taking things apart to look at, okay, now wait a minute, where does this assumption come from? And where is this built from? And is this truly Jesus or is this medieval Christianity? And is this really what the scriptures are calling us to, or is this institutionalized religion? And and what are the relationships? That, those are all beautiful questions. We have to be able to ask those questions. If our faith can't um, survive, people asking those kind of authentic questions, then our faith was never, it never had very much value to begin with. But reconstruction is super helpful because at some point you have to take these pieces that you've taken apart and figure out what you're going to do with them or this thing just continues to spiral and, and you can deconstruct forever. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but we're all looking for the thing that we're putting back together. So what are the pieces that do make sense? What are the parts that when you you took it apart, you went, oh, well, this this is actually really good. Don't toss this in the garbage. We need to figure out where to put this and how to reconstruct some of this so that I can get some mileage out of this because this is something that's full of full of Jesus and may maybe get rid of the stuff that it was never supposed to be full of. But there's going to be things in the process of deconstruction. We don't toss everything in the garbage. We got to keep something. We're looking for the stuff that we that we need to keep, the stuff that was worth having, you know, 2000 years ago and still worth having today. And then you got to figure out what you do, what you do with all of that. And that's the reconstruction phase. So I guess in part, a lot of people have said, that's what my ministry attempts to do. And I suppose, I, I suppose so. It's not that my intention was ever to guide reconstruction, but hopefully the conversations that we have do enable the work of reconstruction, enables us to take these pieces that are on the table and say, okay, now how how can I use the good and start putting this together in a way that's helpful and useful and start to build on it? I know a big part of your ministry is um, your experiences in the Holy Land. And in our email exchanges, I, I mentioned to you that I'm leading my first group of Americans to the Holy Land at the end of this month. It'll be my third trip to the Holy Land. My first one was a three-week um uh, kind of class with my Hebrew professor when I was in seminary back in 1990. And believe it or not, mm -hmm. I got to go into the Dome of the Rock and, um, mm -hmm. you know, got, I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, but I'd, I'd love to talk to you about your experiences in the Holy Land and how it shaped your faith. And um, do you have any, any advice for me or tips for me, or maybe start with just what are some, one of your favorite one or two of your favorite places when you go to the Holy Land? Or... Well, my favorite places are just so, per I'm not, I don't know if they'd be the same for everybody else. It's so personal for me to go to Qumran and to learn about the group of people that we've often called the Essenes. I think scholarship now is questioning whether or not we should be calling them Essenes or not. But the sons of Zadok, who were gathered at a place like Qumran, compiling the Dead Sea Scrolls, committed to the text i mean i just love to go i mean i'm built for that that is my that is that, that is the place that is the lesson that really changed my life and set me on the trajectory that led to everything bema or this book or anything like that so i just I, I love that that place i love that lesson and that 
experience. Um, I love the Galilee. If I'm by myself, I love Jerusalem. Don't get me wrong. I hate leading a group of people through Jerusalem. It's so touristy. There's a million places to get lost. I freak out when I'm a leader in Jerusalem. But um, but it's a great place to be able to go to the Kotel, the Western Wall, um, to visit the Herodian. One of my favorite places is the Wool Museum, the Herodian Quarter. Um, it was under construction the last two times I went. And gosh dang it, they need to get that done because I want to get back in there. Uh, it's one of my favorite places to take students. Um, have you been to uh, Mag Magdala yet? You know, I have not been to the newer dig at Magdala. I've been to old Magdala before they found like the new synagogue or any of those kind of things. There, there's so much to happen during COVID and some of it I've been able to find and see and some of it I haven't gotten to visit yet. Magdala is one I have not wandered into yet. That is, uh, I, I got to go there a year ago and boy, it is oh, yeah. amazing when you think about all that took place there. That yeah. Mary Magdalene, it wasn't her name, Mary Magdalene. She was Mary of Magdala. Yep. She came from Magdala. And so much we might misunderstand about her. Yeah, um, yeah. But I love the Galilee. Man, there's nothing like being out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and just thinking about all that took place around Galilee. It's 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 a, man, a, a wonderful experience. And 30 years ago, when I went with my Hebrew professor, we stayed in a kibbutz. Um, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, we were able to go and swim in the ga in, in the in the uh, in the Sea of Galilee, and just uh, just great. So I'm super excited about going. Any any uh, tips, or maybe maybe even sharing some of your experiences with Ray when you went, like kind of uh, any of those aha moments where he kind of like rocked your world um, with an insight about you know following a rabbi or something. Well, I can remember, I mean, I can remember standing on top of Mount Arbel and realizing that 70, 80% of Jesus' ministry happens within what I can look at on top of that mountain, realizing how compact um, really the whole land is, but even just the Galilee itself and how many different people he's interacting with within just an hour or two worth of walk um, was amazing. But I mean, places like wherever Ray would have the opportunity to teach us about doing what the rabbi does and understanding what the world of the Galilee did with following a rabbi, being a disciple, to to have these lessons where Ray would do what we felt like was something insignificant. He might walk on for half a mile, turn around, talk about what it meant to follow the rabbi, and then make us go back to do this insignificant thing that we didn't think we needed. But he would make us go all the way back and do it again. Um, and he said, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And our American rugged individualism doesn't like that. And he says, you know, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And we don't follow, like we follow Jesus if it makes sense, if, if I'm comfortable with it, if I decide I want to. He says, that's not discipleship. Discipleship is doing what your rabbi does, no matter what he does, so that you can become just like him. And, and just that fire of you know, waking up, waking up every morning with a fire in your belly to want to be just like Jesus. That was one of the most impressing things about my time in the Galilee, especially. Didn't you tell a story about one time where Ray, like there was a fence and you could easily step over the fence, uh -huh. but Ray uh -huh. went under the fence yep. and then everybody else stepped over it. And then he like turned that into a lesson. Yeah. Yep. He crawled under a fence, a barbed wire fence, about 20 feet, 20 yards to our right. It, the whole fence had fallen down. So we couldn't figure out why we were getting down and crawling underneath the fence and 
going through all that trouble, he just went over and stepped over the fence and kept on going. And he walked for a good, uh, my, my memory serves me a good three quarters of a mile and then turned around and did a lesson on what it means to follow the rabbi. I said, I'll wait here while you guys go back to the fence and I want you to crawl underneath it like I did. And that whole lesson was a setup for us to say, when the rabbi does something, you do it. You don't know why the rabbi's doing it, but there's a reason. So trust Jesus. Trust that Jesus is doing something for a reason and do what he does, because if not, you're going to miss the lesson. That's great. Now, my my question is, do you do that kind of thing when you take groups over there? Maybe. It might be. <laughs> it's, a, it's a top secret, but yeah, I, I, may, do, I may do similar things. All right. Well, uh, we are at the end of our time. Um, my last question for you, you know, we both share a passion for discipleship and disciple making. Um, are you learning anything about discipleship or disciple making in our context today? Um, I think I'm growing. I, you know, it's been a long time since I'd gotten and dug into any discipleship or methods or any of that kind of stuff type study for me. What I think I'm learning the most is just growing in my own maturity to realize that it was never really about the method that I might use or the formula. I used to get really wound up about that kind of stuff. Um, and, and as I grow and I mature, it's much more about knowing, knowing Jesus first and foremost, knowing my students or those that I'm discipling second and bringing those two worlds together and trying to prayerfully be aware of what Jesus wants to do in that space. And, uh, there's some humility that comes with, with that. And, it's been a good it's been a good learning curve for me. The book Asking Better Questions of the Bible by Marty Solomon will officially be released on February 7th, but you can pre-order your copy on Amazon today. It's a must-read for any disciple who wants to gain a greater clarity on who God is and what it means to follow God in these uncertain times. You can also find out more about Marty Solomon at martysolomon.com. This is the Gospel Addict Podcast. The Gospel Addict is, is a believer who acknowledges that they need Jesus just as much today as the day they first trusted him, and who believes that the good news about Jesus is the best news ever. Are you a Gospel Addict, Marty? I'd say yes to that. I'm Greg Bryan, and I'm a Gospel Addict. I'm Marty Solomon, and I'm a Gospel Addict. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.